hey everybody welcome to the wednesday it's actually thursday thursday welcome to thursday bible study hello christina uh hello patricia thanks for joining me today we are um christina you said it is sunny it is a sunny afternoon it has looked beautiful i've been looking out my window here uh at the office and and just kind of enjoying that and so um it's it is a it is a beautiful day. It, it almost makes you feel like spring might be close, maybe a little bit, uh, realizing that it's still January. So got a little bit of time. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining me. We are in our second uh, part where we're actually in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to be going through uh, verse nine through 20 of chapter one today. And I think it is going to be. Um, I found it powerful when I was studying for it, so I'm excited for communicating it to you. So um, so uh, let's get into that. I'm going to jump over to the notes here. Uh, hey, Ben Crawford, uh, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Uh, really glad that you're able to join uh, with me today. Uh, if you don't know, at times you won't see me look down. Um, I just want to give you a heads up. I'm looking down at the computer screen so that I can see... Um, see who's logging on. And then also too, if you see me do it through throughout the, the day, uh, through, through my teaching, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. So I just want to give you a heads up. I'm, I'm not checking text messages or anything like that. Just kind of, uh, trying to keep myself on pace and on par with where I'm going and what I'm doing. All right. So let me get my notes fired up here and then we'll be ready to go. All right, there we are. We're all back up and going. Okay. So we are going to be looking at Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, and then I just want to open us up with prayer, and then uh, I'll actually read the passage that we're going to be processing through today. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word and the way that you speak to us, the way that you paint pictures of who you are and, and the way you communicate um, just what you've done and what you've accomplished and, and what that means for our lives as we, we try to follow after you. God, I'm excited by the fact that you speak to us. I'm, 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 I'm humbled, and, and, and God, oftentimes, uh, if, if I can just be honest, not humbled enough. God, I pray that my response to you and, and our response as we gather together is that we would always be more in love with you and that we would always be more trusting of you, that we would walk in worship and we'd walk in obedience, Lord God. And so I just pray that, that as you lead us through this time and as you um, teach us information. I pray that it would not just stay in our, our heads, but it would transfer to our hearts and it would transform our lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this time and it's in your precious name. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead and read. And I've decided to put the scriptures up on the screen uh, so you can follow along. Um, I'll put the scripture reference, the, the scripture translation that I'm using uh, down in the bottom corner always. So, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to follow along this way. I, John, your brother who share with you in Jesus, the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. 
His head and his hair were white as white wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and in sea. I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right. So beautiful passage, very rich in imagery and very rich in symbolism. And we're going to break that down in just a little bit. But first, I want to start by asking the question is, who is this John? Now, when a biblical writer typically writes a letter to churches, they would usually address themselves um, at the very beginning of the letter and let the church know who is writing to them and what authority they have uh, to write. Now, um, when you look at the letters from Apostle Paul, Paul would always start his letters from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or he would say sometimes a servant of Jesus Christ. So, um, so typically the apostolic greeting or the authoritative greeting at the beginning of letters usually indicated whether or not the writer was an apostle, whether they were a leader in the church. Um, John, First uh, John, Second John, Third John kind of uh, introduced themselves as the writer of that book introduces himself as John the Elder. And so um, we have a couple different people who go by John in the New Testament. And so it, this could be the Apostle John. It could not be. It could be John the Elder, um, who is, is described in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. It could be. It could be the same person who wrote uh, the Gospel of John. It could be somebody different named John. Here, here's what you need to understand. Tradition says that it is the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. And, and the only reason we're talking about this, the only reason that we're talking about this is because it has bearing for what John is um, conveying to the churches. So it could be the Apostle John, but it could not be. What we know from the letter, and, and oftentimes um, will allow tradition to kind of influence us where the first and couple uh, second century churches kind of got their information from to, to put um, acclamation and, and accreditation to these letters. But the letter themselves, letter themselves oftentimes give us some clues and tell us. So, like I said, like with the letters to Paul, Paul identifies himself. So with John, what we know from the letter is that he is a brother. He is a fellow believer. He doesn't identify himself as the leader of the, these churches. He identifies himself as a fellow believer who is a partner in the tribulation. So the churches are experiencing difficulty and trial, and he identifies himself as a partner um, in their struggles. He's a partner in the kingdom. So we know that he is working for the kingdom of God. We also know that he is a partner in patient endurance, and, and patient endurance is going to be a major theme of, of Revelation but what he's saying is, I am a partner 
who is um, enduring with you. I've experienced tribulation trials too, and I'm working on being patient and faithful um, to Jesus through these trials. And then he says, um, I'm on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. So the tradition kind of goes that the apostle John was, uh, attempt they attempted to martyr him by boiling him in oil. And when he didn't die from that, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And pa Patmos has this tradition of being a, a prisoner, a prison island, um, kind of like what Australia was uh, at the beginning. It was, the, it was an island where they would oftentimes send exiles. Now, some people think that John was alone. Some people think that, um, that, that there were a colony there. There was a colony there. Either way, he was on Patmos, and he was on there because of the testimony of, of his testimony about Jesus. And that he is the writer of the vision to the churches. And this is the part that I, I think bears the most um, importance in looking at who John was. John claims nothing else for himself other than the fact that, that Jesus appears to him, gives him a vision, and calls him to write it down and send it to the churches. And so for John, his authority is, is first and foremost and fully developed in the person and work of who Jesus was. And so when John sends this letter to the churches, he doesn't expect them to do what he's saying because he is an elder in the church or because he is an apostle. John expects them to do it because he has seen this vision and he expects them to respond to the authority of Jesus. So the whole reason I wanted to explain this is, is John's main focus is that this is a revelation about Jesus by Jesus, kind of like what we covered yesterday. Okay, so um, that's why I wanted to kind of introduce, John introduces himself, and so I wanted to, to kind of kind of get that, that his thrust and his emphasis uh, in there so that we have that understanding. Now, let's talk about what John sees. And I, I'm just going to read through, I'm going to list them out for you, uh, the descriptors that John puts out about what he sees when he turns around after he hears the voice on Patmos. And then I'm, I'm going to talk about symbolism and imagery a little bit, and then I'm going to break down kind of what I, I, uh, what I have studied and what I found in my study of, of what these kind of images mean and what, the, what, what John's talking about. So what does he see? What, what does he say that um, he sees? First, he sees seven golden lampstands. Then he sees one like a son of man standing in the midst of them. That person is wearing a robe and a gold sash. They have a head and white hair like wool and like snow. They have eyes like flaming fire. They have feet like purified burnished bronze. They have a voice like many waters. They have a right hand with seven stars. They have a mouth with a two-edged sword. They have a face like a shining sun. And I just want to stop a second and say, this is the most odd-looking person, if, if it's describing a person that I've ever seen. It's, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody that, that looks like this. And, and John is using a lot of physical descriptor images, but I think that that's what they are because I think John has something greater to share. Now, and, and he's going to use imagery and symbolism, which I, I've kind of described that this is kind of the, the mode um, of apocalyptic literature. They are tr the, the, the writers of apocalyptic, apocalyptic apocalyptic literature 
is really trying to convey and paint a bigger picture. Um, they're trying to make broader brushstrokes and get you to see something that, um, that you wouldn't see if they just told you exactly what they were saying. Our 21st century minds, we don't like that. And, and, and here's what, here's what I, an example that I kind of thought of as I was studying this. My wife, Cassie, has the most beautiful blue eyes that I, I would ever say. And they're, they're bluish gray. They're steel looking like they're, they're just they're, they're just amazing. And, and I could stare at her eyes and stare into her eyes for days. Um, she, she's just beautiful. Now, I could tell you that she's beautiful and she has beautiful eyes. That's a compliment to her. It, it's not that. Um, it's not that I'm doing injustice to what I'm saying. And, and honestly, there are going to be some of you that go tell it to me straight. I don't want to hear all the details. I just want to know the facts. That's fine. But that's not how this book is written. And, and so it would be more like I came to you and I said to you, my wife's eyes are like the summer sky. The, the, the depth of her stare and is is like uh, like the the Atlantic Ocean, deep and and just rich and blue. And so, like, if I say something like that, you're getting a different picture of my wife's eyes, other than if I just said my wife's eyes are beautiful. The one way you get the compliment, you you get the picture that my wife's eyes are beautiful. But when I say that they're like a summer sky or that they're like the deep Atlantic Ocean. You, you, you start in your own mind to work up this picture of what you're seeing. This is what John is doing. John is using physical images to represent something deeper because he wants your mind to gravitate and think about who this person is. And I'm just going to tell you, this person is Jesus. I'm not going to he, he goes on later on to, to say that. So um, if you hadn't picked up on that yet, I'll just say it plainly. This person is, he's describing Jesus is the one that he's seen. Okay. So John is using this image, these, these images about Jesus to paint a bigger picture and to tell the churches something deeper. You're going to notice that he uses the language of like a lot. So, and, and it's not like the language of like the Valley girl or anything like that, or somebody who's stumbling over their words, like says like a lot, like I'm kind of saying like right now, that that's not what John's doing. John is using it as a comparison, as like a, a metaphor. And so when you see this language throughout the book of revelation, you need to remember it, there's probably some imagery or symbolism going on in that time. John is also giving a lot of allusions to Old Testament uh, images and visions. Um, the Old Testament used a lot of, of images to represent other things. So oftentimes in the prophets, you're going to hear the prophet talk about grapevines, and you're going to hear them talk about fruit, and you're going to hear them talking about um, maybe like even back as far as into the book of Exodus, you're going to hear them talk about the land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And essentially, it's just this idea of richness, and, and, and um, it's this picture of abundance. The prophets, when they say grapevine, they're always talking about um, they're always talking about the nation of Israel, how God had planted a vineyard, and instead of producing good fruit, they produced wild vines. And so, what is God? Say, or what are the prophets saying in that moment? 
Israel was supposed to be this place that produced this amazing fruit, and yet they're wild olive shoots. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They produce fruit that's not good for, for bearing. And so you'll hear the prophets use that kind of imagery a lot. And so John is using this kind of language, this kind of, 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 of tool to, to tell something about Jesus because he wants the churches to understand something important about what he sees in Jesus. So let me break it down. I realize we're probably going to go a little bit longer today. This, this, I'm going to go back through those images and kind of describe them a little bit, explain them a little bit. Um, so if you got to jump off here, be sure to check back later on um, as we're probably going to go about 20, 25 minutes today. So just heads up. All right. Uh, another thing that I want you to know is uh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of these definitions, a lot of this explanation from a book called Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson. I highly recommend if you want to read Revelation, you want to understand it in a new light, read Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson. It's an amazing book, and it so beautifully describes the vision that John has and explains the vision that John has. So I got a lot of that from today. So the seven golden lampstands, let's start there. Well, Revelation 120 goes on to when Jesus is, is talking to John after uh, John describes what he sees. He says the, the, the golden lampstands are churches. So um, and, and here's the thing with it. The, the lampstands is, is just a, a image that they use for the churches. But the golden part is, is, is has some significance. When you see the, the word gold or the color gold in Revelation, you, you can often think something along the lines of incorruptibility. Gold does not rust and it does not ruin. Um, it can sit, it can be buried, it can be dropped in water, it can be, no matter what it goes through, it is incorruptible. It, it will not rust. And so what you see is when you see the word gold, you're often getting this picture of something lasting, something incorruptible. And so we see the churches in their incor incorruptibility and, and, and how uh, the, the vision that John has of the churches. And then we see one like a son of man. Now, I told you that there's Old Testament allusions throughout this, uh, this passage. And this is the first one that we come to. The son of man, that term comes from Daniel chapter 7, uh, specifically in verse 13 and 14. And, and when Daniel uses this language of the Son of Man, and Jesus is going to adopt it for himself uh, through the Gospels. And so the church is going to identify Jesus as this Son of Man from Daniel's vision. And, and what you kind of need to pick up from this is this. First and foremost, it's a human figure. Daniel saw the Son of Man as someone human, but it was also something more than human. It was almost like it was a glorified human. So I want you to imagine... Um, in, in, in the world of the Marvel Universe, this is not just a man. This is a superhero. This is someone who is really the way that Eugene Peterson kind of describes it. There's, it's someone who is living out of the, the fullness of the image of God that was given to him in Genesis 1. So Adam was always meant to be this, this human and yet glorious image of God on earth. And this is what the Son of Man, when that term is used, what they're trying to describe. Unfortunately, Adam chose to fall. Adam chose to sin and rebel against God. And so that part of, of the image of God was kind of lost on Adam. 
it's lost in us at times, but Jesus came and lived as the son of man, as, as this, this kind of human who, who has this heavenly glorified um, portion to them. So, and, and the way that Jesus does it is beautiful. It, 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 uh, Eugene Peterson really does a great job describing how Jesus came as this humble servant, and yet he was also the glorified son of God. And, and so, um, and so there's this, this, this very like contrasting imagery in Jesus of, of this, this term son of man. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I realize I'm giving a lot of like history behind some of these, these uh, descriptions. So the son of man is wearing a long robe and a golden sash. Essentially, you get another picture of, of the gold. Um, Jesus is wrapped in incorruptibility. It's, he is lasting. There's something about him that, that or he possesses the quality of, 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 of the heavenly realm and the divine realm. Then there's the, the white hair, like wool and snow. And, and oftentimes white is synonymous with victory. We're going to see Jesus sat upon a white horse later on. Um, resurrection. It's the, it's the image of purity and cleanness. Uh, the lamb is going to clothe the, um, the, the saints in white garments. And so you get this kind of image of purity. And so John is trying to convey the purity and the resurrection and the victory of Jesus. Then he has eyes like flaming fire. And what does fire do? It, 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 it attaches to something and it doesn't just kind of dance on the surface. Fire and heat penetrate. And then fire and heat through that penetration transform. And so you get this image of Jesus's gaze kind of staring into, into us. And when it, when it penetrates into us, it sees us for who we are. It sees past our masks. And it transforms us. And so that nothing, there's this, this idea that nothing is hidden. And, and that, that Christ in his, his uh, fire, his purifying fire is transforming. And so John is painting this picture um, of, of Jesus' eyes, that, that there are, they're not fooled and that they can see into things and they can read into the true, trueness of it and it's transforming. All right, and then... There's the feet like purified bronze. All right, we're going to get another history lesson here, an Old Testament lesson. In the book of Daniel, again, when Daniel's kind of introduced to King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel is going to interpret it for him. In King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a statue, and this statue is uh, a statue of iron feet and clay mixed together. And then the statue kind of gets more refined as it goes up. The statue has... Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to botch this cause I don't have it memorized and I don't have it in my notes, but there's bronze in it. And then there's gold and there's, there's all these different, Im, um, metals that make up this, this image. And, and Daniel tells them that this image is the image of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And yet this rock comes in the, in the dream and crumbles and knocks over the, the statue. And so what it means for Nebuchadnezzar is that his kingdom is built on this poor base, the iron and the clay. They don't mix together well. And so when the, when this, this trial, this rock comes against it, it, his kingdom crumbles. And we see Daniel explain this in Daniel chapter two to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so when we get this picture 
of, of feet that are purified, burnished bronze. We get this image of this, this pure and this perfect and this well-established uh, metal that will hold up the image that, that is being seen. And so it is, again, referencing a kingdom, much like King Nebuchadnezzar's statue was, but this is referencing Jesus's kingdom. And Jesus's kingdom is based on the best burnished bronze, not just any bronze, but purified bronze. So it's strong and it's stable and it's secure. And so uh, when, when John is talking about Jesus's feet being like purified bronze, the kingdom of God is established and secure and there's nothing, even if some trial comes against it, it is, it is lasting and it will not crumble and will not be knocked over. Then we see this description of a voice like many waters. And here, what we have is uh, the, a description of the, the voice of God. And, and, and we don't get a whole lot of, of, of something that describes this, but think about many waters. Think about the different bodies of water that you hear or see. Uh, think about the ocean and how it's moving and how it's vibrant and how it's deep. And, and really, the, the ocean, though we have tools now, back then it would have been unfathomable. And I mean that in the strictest sense of the term. A fathom is the depth of the ocean. It was unfathomable to them. And so you get these waters that are active and they're vibrant. And so when you see this imagery, you don't think of Jesus' voice, of God's voice, being this dainty little um, shrill thing, right? You get this roar, this thunder, this rumbling. And so John is painting this picture that, that God's voice is robust and it's strong and it's mighty and it's deep. I hope you're excited about this. I, I, I'm probably geeking out a lot here, and, I, and so I'm not going to apologize about it because it increases my faith, and so I hope it does you too. But hang with me. We're just about through this. And so then we have the, the right hand with the seven stars, and we've got really two images uh, going on right here. First and foremost, we've got uh, the seven stars, and these are actually, um, according to Eugene Peterson, this was the known universe at the time. And these stars would have been the seven planets. So they would have understood that there were seven planets or seven stars that moved. Um, and, and so as these stars and moved and they aligned, this would have formed their version of astrology. And, and so um, as we see this picture, Jesus is holding the seven stars. And so the, the kind of the, the, the mindset and the mentality here is that Christ holds these seven stars in his hands. He is in control of them. It's not that they dictate what happens. So with astrology, people kind of allow that to dictate their life. John is saying Jesus holds the cosmos in his hands. And the, the whole idea with the right hand is that it's, it's active. It's ready for action. And it's, it's working. And so John wants to paint this picture that Jesus holds the, the, the universe in his hands and that there's nothing outside of his control. Then we have the two-edged sword. Now, maybe if you're familiar with the New Testament, maybe Hebrews chapter 4, it, instantly this image comes to your mind. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the thoughts and the hearts and the minds of men. And so you get this, you get this image that, that what's coming out of Jesus' mouth, the words that are coming out of his mouth, are, are, are piercing. They are, um, they are able to penetrate just kind of like the fire 
And, and, and not only are they piercing and they're able to penetrate, this is the weapon. A sword is a weapon. So this is the weapon that, that Jesus wields. It's his word. It's, it's the same words that created the heavens and the earth are the same words he speaks now. And it's, it's how he wages war against the evil and the culture and, and the, the empire that, that John is addressing. And so this is honestly the weapon that, that John is going to give to his churches. It's the weapon of the word of God. And that's very much what John sees that he's doing by writing down this vision is giving them the weapons of the word of God in their lives. And so the two-edged sword coming out of Jesus's mouth is the word of God. And then we see the face shining like the sun. And John would very much be calling back to mind this picture of Moses coming down off the mountain and his face radiating so much so that they would have veiled it. And, or that Exodus says they put a veil over it because it was so bright. And, and honestly, this is, this image is it, this Moses's face was a reflection, but John is very much communicating that Jesus is emanating this light. And so this warmth and this light and this grace and this, this, this presence of God just, emanates off of Jesus. And, and the other thing to keep in mind is the blessing that Moses gives to the people in Numbers chapter six. He said, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And so John ends this image here with this idea of, of the grace of God, of his light shining on the churches, of his light shining into these dark areas and bringing warmth and grace and peace um, because of his presence. So these are the images that, that John used to kind of describe. And then Jesus comes along and gives some more description to him. Jesus tells John that, uh, excuse, uh, excuse me. Um, yeah, Jesus says, I am the everlasting one. I'm the one that has overcome death. And, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. And it's just this, this picture that Jesus is never ending. And that the very thing that, that most humanity fears the most, death, he is Lord over it. He is the everlasting one. He is the one who is worthy to be worshiped, to be praised. And as we're going to see, John's response, and, and I kind of prayed through it here. John's response is one of worship. He falls on his face. And he praises this, this, this being, Jesus, and he, he obeys. He writes down the words that he's been commanded to obey. And so this is kind of the, the overview, and if you want to call it brief, of uh, Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. And so what are the takeaways? Yesterday, we talked about what would life look like if we... Um, uh, I'm sorry, it just kind of poof, just kind of left me. What would life look like if we lived life, there it is, lived life in a way that Jesus was always present, that Jesus was um, always active, and that Jesus was going to come back for, for us, so if we lived into that promise. Today, I want us to ask the question, what changes in our lives if we see Jesus as John did? If we see that he's present, if we see that he's human yet divine, if we see that he's everlasting, that we can put our trust in him and that he's not going to fade away or leave us or abandon us, that he's pure and that he's righteous. 
What is going to mean to, to understand that Jesus is transforming, that he's secure and that he's stable and that, that his kingdom is secure and stable and will be without end. That he's active in speaking to his church and that he's Lord and holder of the cosmos and of death. What does our lives look like if we live life with this picture of who Jesus is? And here's what I'd recommend. Come back later, hit pause on this section of the video, and just kind of start processing through. If I lived life like Jesus was present in my life, what would it change in this circumstance? If I lived life that Jesus was human in the fact that he is near me, that he uh, understands what I've gone through, and yet he's divine, he understands what it means to say no to sin. What does it look like if I live my life understanding that Jesus is everlasting? What does it look like if I live life with, with the understanding that Jesus is pure and that he's righteous, that he gives his righteousness to me, and so forth and so on? I, I'm, I'm going long here, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But it's, it, it, I want you to take time and process through these um, these images and and see how that you might respond differently to the circumstances that you're in. All right, guys, that's it for today. I went really long. I apologize uh, for the length of this. That is probably going to happen because I'm trying to cram a lot into a little bit of time. So, or in a, uh, I should say, a, a lot of information and, and a lot of passages into uh, fewer amounts of time is, is how I should describe it. So what I recommend is if you can't stay for the whole, uh, whole Bible study, jump back on later, save the, save the link in your bookmarks and come back to, um, to it at, at a later time. And then you can always shoot your questions to me uh, via C-Read at the tree.church. If you're on Facebook, you can Facebook message me though. I, I will be 100% honest with you. Um, I check Facebook probably twice a week. So um Email me is better, and then I will get back with you. And if it's a um, if it's a question that I feel will fit really well in the Q and A's that we're going to be doing, um, would love, would love, love, love to have you submit those, and I'll answer them then. All right, guys, I am at 35 minutes, so I'm going to sign off here. And I just want to take some time and and just say thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for um, your time here, and. Uh, I really, really do appreciate you joining and, and, and not so much for, for being here um, with me, but being interested in the word of God and knowing how to read it, understand it and apply it to your life more and more. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day. I'll see you again on Tuesday.